HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. I'm your host, Severin, and today we have Natalie Kilmer coming to us from the Bay Area, where she is working in many matters of gray matter and gray water matter. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Would you mind giving a little introduction to your of yourself and your work there in the in the Berkeley Bay Area? Sure. Um, so I live in Oakland, and uh, I have a edible landscaping business um, in the Greater Bay Area, where I focus on edibles and medicinals. And then I also work with Greywater Action and um, help teach um, basically gray water, rainwater catchment, composting toilet workshops um, in Northern California. So it used to be that gray water action was called gray water gorillas. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that grassroots work um, has changed over the years and a little bit of the state of the scene of gray water in California? Yeah, well, um, so I've basically been working with Grey Water Action over the last couple years, and then um, I interned for them a few years ago, and I did their installers class about five years ago. Um, and so Grey Water Action was originally Grey Water Gorillas, and that was basically, it changed to Grey Water Action um, in 2009. I should have you talk to Christina because she's here and she has worked there a lot longer than me. But um, yeah, basically the codes changed. Um, a lot of stuff the, in California. The building codes. The, the zoning codes. The, um, the building codes changed in California, huh? Yeah. So in California, like it used to actually be illegal 
to do some gray water projects, and now it doesn't even require a permit for laundry to landscape, which is one of the easiest to do. And with Gray Water Action, we have a focus where we do more of a low-tech um, installations and just recommend things that are um, less, less moving parts, less things will break, and also lower costs to maintain and install. So let's talk about what does it take? I mean, what does it mean if you have a job? So you, if you're able to have two jobs, one is your own business and one is working for another business, and they're in related fields, but um, that sounds fun as a career to have a nice split like that. But can you explain maybe some of the actions and activities that it takes to install the gray water and um, what, it, what it takes to become proficient in that? Yeah, well, I definitely recommend people that are interested in educating themselves or homeowners to take a Gray Water Action webinar or um, workshop. Um, now we're in both Northern California and Southern California. Um, the founder, Laura, is down in SoCal right now. And I think so to install a laundry to landscape system, there's um, the laundry to landscape, which can be fairly simple, but there's like some guidelines that you need to follow. And um, a lot of, you know, just things that the health department's always concerned about contaminating the water supply. So we always try to teach things in a way where um, we're going to protect not just the people at their home, but we're also wanting them to, you know, follow larger guidelines that, you know, they don't put their neighbors at risk or anything like that. So there are some guidelines that you need to follow, even though the laundry to landscape doesn't require a permit. But um, to do many of the systems, like to do a branch drain would be anything in the house except for the toilet, obviously, and the kitchen sink technically in California right now. Um, some states, the kitchen sink legal, and so the branch drain is a gravity-based system versus the laundry to landscape. You can use the pump that's inside of your laundry machine, so that can, uh, you know, you're, we're trying to, like, not incorporate any parts that would be duplicate, so we don't need another pump if you can already use the pump in your laundry machine, and, you know, you want to use, like, a three-way valve so that there's you know, you don't want to be sending out bleach or, like, poopy diapers to the plants in your garden. So there's a, a lot of kind of guidelines like that that are kind of, like, fail-safe just to keep the public safe. I would have thought poopy diapers would be great for the for the fruit trees. I know the, the poopy diapers can be really great for the fruit trees. Um, the health department is just, you know, concerned about people being irresponsible with that and, like, if that water delighted. So, like, the other thing with gray water is you can't hold it more than 24 hours legally. It has to be used within 24 hours. So no holding tanks because um, a lot of people want to do that. And then there are some really high-tech systems where you, you know, have filters and you can put it through drip systems. But generally most of the systems that we teach um, – the low-tech versions wouldn't go into um, drip systems. They'd go into, like, mulch basins. and um, it's all Can we talk about the, the volume of water and, like, you know, if you're a typical residential house and you have, say, three roommates and, um, like, how much, how much garden that waters? 
So it totally depends on what type of laundry machine they have, right, if we're talking about laundry to landscape, because that's the only one that you can install technically without a permit. So homeowners can do it. And so if you have, say, three housemates, and usually some people do a wide range of laundry. Like we've even, some people have done up to like 11 loads for just two people in a week, and some people just do like one a month. So it totally depends on how many loads of laundry you do. If you have a top-loading machine, that's like you generally tops out at about 50 gallons, but average about 45. And then if you have a new front loader, those sometimes weigh everything just based on how, how much the clothes, how much volume the clothes take up, and then the water kind of matches that. So <clears throat> just use like a couple gallons, the newer ones. And then like if you have a top-loading older machine, that could really, you know, w water a lot of fruit trees. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And I guess I didn't realize that it could take 50 gallons to do a load of laundry. I mean, that's just a heck of a lot of water. Well, yeah, I know. It's incredible. And then that's something to take into account, like, you know, do you have a lot of fruit trees already? Or are you planning to do that? Or, like, do you just have a space where you really don't have anywhere to use gray water? Or, like, if folks are in a really urban area with a lot of concrete, um, so there's all that to take into account, like, if you're thinking of getting a new machine um, or not, you know. So when you're approaching one. this as a designer and you're engaging with clients who are interested to do edible landscapes, um, what is your toolkit of, what is, like, your rhetoric that you use when you are trying to help them decide what to, to do? and you know, I know that in Los Angeles there was a really amazing incentive program to remove lawns, yeah. and that that made a great opportunity for people doing native plants and their escaping and edible gardening because basically homeowners got paid money per square foot of lawn that they removed. Um, but maybe you could just reflect on, yeah, the conversation that you're having with your client. Yeah, so... Um... It's interesting. I mean, a lot of folks I talk to are really interested in gray water, and then I think a lot of it's just education because people sometimes have unrealistic expectations regarding it or just don't really know the legalities of using gray water. Um, so I always try to come at it from, you know, a standpoint that's going to put them, like, you know, in a good position if people want it to further down the road sell their home and, you know, they don't want it to be a liability issue if they did something that wasn't kind of the best design, and then I'm also trying to, you know, think about, like, what type of system they can actually maintain, because like, one of the main questions is, can we water our lawn? Like, a lot of people still want to water their lawn with gray water, and it's not really feasible, because with mulch basins, you'd have to only water, it wouldn't work with a lawn, it only really works for large perennials or larger plants, so it just, it's definitely talking with people and figuring out, like, if they're... I think that, like, gray water can be adapted to anyone in the state of California and across, you know, the United States or the world. Like, it's pretty simple and straightforward, but I think a lot of the things that we're used to in our society, like, kind of are a little bit backwards. So it's kind of like we're getting back to nature, you know? Um, uh, yeah. Well, there you are on the front lines trying to reacculturate our expectations <laughs> to be more logical. 
thank you for doing that difficult work. Good thing you're charming and persuasive. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that was fun. Um, so let's so we so we're so each load of laundry is somewhere between fifty and and one and three gallons of water, and that goes kind of a long way in landscape. Certainly, that does. Uh, if you have fifty ga- if you have fifty gallons a week coming just from your washing machine, that would that would probably do what like at least two fruit trees, right? Yeah. Well, let me calculate that for you. So, I mean, I think minimum for like a young fruit tree around the bay, so say around here, I think um, you could probably get by with like 15 gallons a week for a young fruit tree a week. So you could split that up between a few um, with the 50 gallons a week. But then, so say if we're in a hotter climate, it's all totally catered to our microclimates or um, where we're at, right? So, say inland, a little bit in Sacramento, that same fruit tree would probably need a lot more water, just based on the the heat. And um, let's talk a little bit about toxins and um, what you what you what your practices are and how you kind of counsel people about poison in their land. Mm-hmm. Probably if they're using gray water, it's going to make them a lot more sensitive about what goes down the drain. But there's also the consideration of what's in the land. Um, how do you as a practitioner approach that? That's a great question. Well, I think that even plays in with the gray water, too, because people have to change what they're using. Like they have to use um, biodegradable products and products without a lot of salt or boron because those are, uh, will kill plants not necessarily right away. But over time, they'll accumulate and um, will kill the plant. And then, just um, in an urban area that's been settled for a while, there's a lot of there's lead in the soil, um, especially around building edges. And then, but um, uh, what about what about the land itself? Do you do testing as a matter of protocol, or is there any requirement? I do like, testing. Should you, should um, do I do different types of testing. Like the standard test that I'll do for clients is that uh, we'll test for nutrient levels and then also lead. Um, and then that kind of indicates us, like, how much we have to amend the soil. And then, I mean, with lead, I mean, I've also asked the Ecology Center in Berkeley is a great resource. They have done a lot of research about lead, so there's a lot of ways to amend it. I mean, over time, like, the more things we bring in to amend the soil, it just lessens the parts per million of lead. But the main risk for lead is, like, women that want to get pregnant or um, kids under six or women that are breastfeeding. So um, other than that, um, if you're, like, older, you know, it's not as big of an issue. But lead is kind of the main thing to look out for. I mean, there are, like, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things in in our environment already, just being in the city or wherever we are. But, um, yeah, I mean, plants are pretty resilient. And I do kind of think that, you know, if we take care of, where we're at and amend the soil that, you know, we can build, we can build the soil back up. We can regenerate our environment. And that's, that's really inspiring to me. Yeah. Well, we made a movie about land in, uh, or in Philadelphia and actually we filmed part of it, kind of cheated. We filmed part of it in Baltimore also, but, and it was all about how the soil will stay polluted until it gets, 
healed, or that, well, I guess the name of the movie was The Solution to Pollution is Life. And that nice. there's a, one paradigm of thinking is that you would kind of remove the soil, and another paradigm of thinking is that you would uh, improve the soil and, in, and enhance the biology in the soil so that it sequesters as much as possible of those materials because they're not really going away. Totally, yeah. That's really cool. I haven't seen that movie, but I would love to. What's the name of it again? Oh, you can see it on the Internet. At, uh, it's ourland.tv. Oh, cool. And um, it's already kind of old now, that movie, but it's still there. Nice. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, so there's, like, removing it, which um, people can do that, and people get really concerned. I kind of, yeah, I, I love to build the soil. I mean, I'd rather do that. Then remove it and put it in the landfill, because then we're, we're just creating another problem. So, um, so what else should we talk about? What else is what else is on your mind in in the Oakland urban gardening scene these days? Uh, I'm really into mulching. I I want I w- I would just love it. I feel like I have a hard time convincing people to to lay down mulch annually or even just to not, like, take the leaves that fall and put them in a compost pile, but, you know, sometimes just leave them in certain places in their yard. Or I, love, I, I feel pretty passionate, and I'm always surprised that people aren't more into mulching. I mean, a lot of people are, but I meet a lot of people, and their gardens aren't mulched. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you never would believe some people you think, of course they'd be the mulching type, and then they're not. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah, or even just like, you know, I try to tell my clients, I'm like, you guys, let's mulch. Like, let's sequ- you can, it even sequesters carbon and this and that. And, um, yeah, it's, I, I, I just feel like there's a gap. Like, there needs to be like a PSA on mulch or something. So one of the things that um, is true about having a really cool life life and profession is that you have to figure out how to make it work in an economy that's not always into doing things the cool way. I wonder if you wanted to reflect on what it's the experience of being a small business person. Yeah. Uh, Well, I have learned a lot just having a small business and met so many inspiring people. And um, it's been really cool in the Bay Area. I've had a lot of support, like um, the Women's Initiative, which I think closed down. They helped me write my business plan. And then I've been working with Pacific Community Ventures in um, the Bay as well and businessadvising.org. So it's, there's all these, and the Sustainable Economies Law Center, there's all these, like, opportunities and um, people that want to, like, give back to the community and support things that are, you know, you know, have a different take on things or um, small businesses. So that's been really awesome to have all the support. And um, I also just think that I was kind of, you know, I didn't really want to go into more debt to... I mean, I love learning, so I wanted to keep learning, and, um, you know, I had to learn a lot of things that I didn't really feel that passionate about, like bookkeeping and um, uh, 
what else did I have to learn? Like keeping up my website and stuff like that is not really stuff I really wanted to do, but um, it's been a really cool way to learn about it um, in a way of in a way of necessity. Like I had to do that so that I could get along with my accountant or <laughs> um, that kind of stuff. And it's not rocket science, it turns out. No, it's not totally rocket science. It's, like, kind of frustrating. But, yeah, it's totally not that crazy. And sometimes it's a nice um, break from all the physical labor. And um, it's kind of satisfying when I get things more organized. It's been nice. Yeah. Well, it always, it always, whenever we're doing our books, and we've just been doing a lot of books lately in Greenhorn's world because we are running tight in our books right now. And, um, you know, it astounds me that the global economy can deliver such cheap food when I see all of the cost of production that go into, you know, putting up an exhibit about a sailboat <laughs> and or whatever it is, installing a festival. I'm just like, how can how can these companies possibly afford to deliver this terrible food for such a low price? You know, as yeah. like or this coconut water from across the world. You know, it's really incredible that there um, these these two economies are co- are co are um, running in parallel. It is. It is always a shocking me. I used to work at the farmer's market, and people would complain about, like, oh, my God, these carrots are $2, and they would get upset about it. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. Like, it was really, those, those carrots are work to grow. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I totally relate to what you're talking about. And I think it's just, well, isn't that always the thing, like, that people, like, the main indicator of a revolution is, like, really high food prices or something like that? Well, and yes, and that seems like a reason why it's likely that uh, trade policy and ag policy uh, and food policy will likely continue to have price pressure downwards on food prices because of that exact issue that, um, like, that the, the, the honest cost of production has been this farmer's struggle for decades and... Uh, and we have not. We as farmers have not had the political power to achieve that goal um, mm-hmm. for some very for compelling political economy reasons. Um, so, okay, what's the vision? What's if if you get your way and and if you look around at what's happening that's on the good side in urban agriculture in Oakland in the Bay Area. Can you just give a tiny short version of how things unfold in the next 10, 15 years um, and all all that is possible? Wow. Well, I mean, there's already some cool stuff happening, like they're changing uh, laws about, you know, the kitchen sink is for gray water is um, moving in the direction of legal, and uh, it's legal in other states, and... I mean, I think that it would be great if people could kind of, you know, maybe not be so focused on, like, highly manicured, ornamental gardens that aren't appropriate necessarily based on water requirements. Um, I mean, I guess I 
I love the idea of, you know, it doesn't necessarily all have to be edible. I think everyone could grow a large majority of the food that they eat. Um, I also think that, you know, some people, that, that's not their interest, but maybe if they could conserve more water. Um, and I think that it would be really cool if, you know, I think Berkeley has some really cool stuff going on, like how they um, people are really excited about the compost and then city members can come and, you know, use that compost that was cured by the city um, in their gardens. So I think that that's a cool connection, and I think if that, you know, were to spread around and if some laws continue to change requiring new buildings, and um, which, is being, which is happening, and I know Marin and SF to new development projects, have to basically incorporate gray water. Um, I feel like, yeah, I mean, composting is somewhat mandatory in some areas, but, you know, getting the rest of the people on board with that. And I guess, I mean, I feel like for people to just be more connected to what they're eating and what it actually takes to grow it, I feel like that's, that would be cool. I, I always like the idea of less blowers and, um, you know, letting, just listening to what's going on in the natural world, like not trying to force so much. You mean like leaf blowers? Yeah, like leaf blowers or um, uh, like sometimes here in Oakland, like in the hills, like people, you know, I'm like, this is Oakland, let's like worship the oak tree, you know, and people, you know, aren't necessarily paying attention to, like, what is our native habitat here, our native, and that's all changed over time, but there's ways we can bring it back in, in certain areas of our lives. Well, that sounds like a good plan, and I'm really glad you got your fingers stuck onto it, and um, I know that that's a very lively community. Sometimes, uh, sometimes when I go to the Bay Area, I just can't believe how cool it is. And sometimes I think, come on, cool people, go to other places. But then sometimes you go other places and it's just as cool as the Bay Area. And you're like, Bay Area thinks they got it all figured out. <laughs> so what's my point? No point, really. Wherever you are, there's, there's something to do. And um, thank you for being on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, everybody. And I want to make sure that you know we have a big festival coming up this summer in the Adirondacks in Lake Champlain, three days long. Our partners in draft animal power and our partners in agroforestry will be presenting beautiful workshops. We have parties at night. We have beautiful community meals in the grain halls. We have lectures, uh, farm tours. There's going to be apples. There's going to be a mill, a, t a tour of the mill. So pretty much if you were thinking about exploring the Champlain Valley and the bumpin' young farmer scene up there, come see the new Greenhorns headquarters and our library and the scene and the fairgrounds. And, um, you know, you got, a, you got an invitation. It's September 16th through 18th. And everybody's welcome. It's very modestly priced. Bye-bye. 
for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. I